Good morning, I'm Brandon Barrett, the pastor here at Grace Covenant. Glad to see you and welcome to those of you that are here for the first time. Uh, This Sunday, this morning, we're starting a new series for the fall and we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. So if you want to start turning in that direction, we're going to be in Acts chapter 1 this morning. It's on page 909 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles. And as you might have noticed from uh, the title of this series in your order of worship, this this fall as we look at Acts, we're going to be talking about the mission of God. And we're going to be talking about the mission of God that comes to us, a mission of God that we receive, and the mission of God as it works itself out through us into the world around us. Um, Acts, this great book of God's activity in the early church and this reminder of God's great activity in our lives now as well. This morning we're going to be looking at the first five verses of chapter 1 as we take a first step into the book of Acts. Now, before we read it, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we ask this morning that you would open up um, your word to us. Words written thousands of years ago about people long dead that still speak to us about the, about the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus who is still at work. We pray that we would see that more and more, Jesus, in our own lives. Speak to us this morning. As you speak to us about your work in the early church, remind us that you are not dead and gone, but you have been raised and you are seated at the right hand of the Father, and you are still powerfully active in our lives. May we taste that again this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, the the beginning of the book of Acts, um, you see from the title of the sermon, The Kingdom Story, Acts tells a story for us. It tells us the story about um, the early church soon after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it tells us a story about God's continuing work for us. But as we see in the book of Acts and throughout the Bible, which is, in fact, one long story. The Bible's made up of a lot of different things. It's made up of poetry and books of history. It's made up of the Gospels, the stories of Jesus. It's made up of the book of Acts, the letters to New Testament churches. But what happens when you stick all of Scripture together? It is this one long story. And in the words of Acts right here, it's the story about God's kingdom. And stories have power. I'm thinking about this recently in our own house. I've, I've mentioned this before, but the stories that are floating around in my house right now. As I've said before, Cinderella is, is one of the primary stories at work in my life. Caroline, she's um, our, da- our three-year-old daughter, she's just enraptured with Cinderella. And I read that story literally at least five times a week. She's got the little Cinderella doll. She's acting it out all day long. Recently, this has gone to a whole new level because my, my daughter loves to dance, and so she'll turn on the music, and, and I have somehow become the prince. And so Caroline, Caroline wants to dance. I'm a terrible dancer. She's patient with me. So we dance, and at some point she says, oh, wait, I have to go. And she goes running off. <laughs> and I say, wait, wait. 
And I pick up the invisible glass slipper and I say, I don't even know your name. And it, it goes on from there. It's one of the one of the stories in our house. Uh, thankfully, our, our two-year-old son, Henry, has just recently, the answer of many prayers, has grasped some story other than just Cinderella. Um, <laughs> recently saw the movie, the animated movie, Cars. So if you've seen the movie Cars, the, the, the race car, the main character's name is Lightning McQueen, and now Henry thinks that he's Lightning McQueen. And I'm really okay with that. So... <laughs> Henry now says Lightning McQueen, and he goes and he says fast, fast, and he goes running down the hall, down the hallway in our house. He was running across the campus of William and Mary the other night when we went to the RUF picnic, saying Lightning McQueen, fast, fast. <laughs> For them, our children are starting to experience the fact that stories have have power. We enter into them. We, we're captivated by them. For for me as a child, and for some of you, this will be no surprise. Uh, the story of the Lord of the Rings captured my imagination. And I can remember sitting down as a, as a child with my dad who read these stories to me. And, and we had, this, um, we had this, this big hardback volume that had all the books in it. And it was red and it had you know, gold leaf and elvish writing on the outside. And I can see that book and I can remember sitting next to my dad as he would open it up. And it was just this enormous, enormous tale. And, and we'd sit down and, and he'd read this to me. And I remember being incredibly captivated by this. Because suddenly there was this whole new world. It was one filled with wizards and hobbits, with elves and dwarves. It was this world of unspeakable grandeur and beauty, and this world that was threatened by this unspeakable evil. And stories like that, when you experience them as a child, maybe you remember from your own favorite story the, the sadness that you feel when, when you finish the story. When you get to that last page and, and you know you're never going to experience that story for the first time again, and suddenly you look around and think, I, I, I wish that were my world. I wish, where, where's Gandalf? Where's, where's Bilbo? <laughs> but with good stories, you also find as you close the book that they have this power that stays with you. They've opened up not only new worlds for you on the pages of that book, but they've told you something about your own life and your own world, and they've opened up horizons of imagination for you. Good stories have the power to do this for us. Now, what we're going to see is that, as I mentioned, that the Bible is telling a story straight through, and it's a story of the kingdom of God. And right here at the beginning of Acts, that, that kingdom story is, is brought right front and center for us. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Because, you see, when you come to faith in Jesus... When you follow him, part of what that means is that you are stepping into a new story. You might have been living a life that was dedicated towards following, living in light of all kinds of things. But when you come to Jesus, you step into his story. The kingdom story becomes your story. For us, the people of God, it has become our story. This is a story that we tell. And this is a story that God is working out in our midst Okay, if, if, so God's kingdom story, we're going to look at just two things about it this morning. First, what is it? What's the story that Scripture's telling us? And the second thing, can I trust it? Okay, what is God's kingdom story, and, and can I trust it? Can I live in it? Is it true? Is it reliable? Can it, hold, can it bear my weight and the weight of my own life? So we're going to look at those two questions. So the first thing, God's kingdom story, what is it? Uh, look at verse 3. First, just to point out this idea of God's kingdom was incredibly significant to Jesus. If you go back and look through the Gospels, you'll see that time and again that so many of Jesus' parables have to do with God's kingdom. What is, it, what is God's kingdom? How do we enter into it? 
As he raised people from the dead, as he healed people who were sick, he was giving evidence that God's kingdom had in fact come. And as he was raised from the dead, he gave evidence to the fact that God's kingdom could not be destroyed. And after Jesus rose from the dead, here in Acts, the first couple of verses here, we see that Jesus, for the next 40 days, before he ascended to heaven, in an event that Luke alludes to and that we'll, we'll talk about more in depth next week, before he ascends to heaven, he spends 40 days with his disciples. And resurrected Jesus has this chance to teach them, to spend time with them. What is he going to talk about? This is, his, this is your last shot at it. Your last shot pre Ascension to heaven. What are you going to talk about? Well, Luke tells us that he spent 40 days talking to the apostles about the kingdom of God. Talking to them about this story. It was that important that he spent that kind of time with them. So verse 3, we see that he spent 40 days talking to his disciples about the kingdom of God. Now, let me, let me give you a very brief definition of the kingdom of God. There's lots of ways this can actually be defined, but, but here, here's one way. The kingdom of God is the reign of God made manifest in this world through the person of his son, Jesus, our king. Okay, the kingdom of God is the reign of God made manifest in this world through the person of God's son, Jesus, our king. Now, in one sense, God is certainly sovereign over all creation. He always has been. There's never been a time when he was not the reigning king. But is it not true that in, in many places all over the world, all over Williamsburg, Everywhere in between, there are places in which God's kingdom reign, his kingship, is not recognized. It's not that it's not true, but it's not acknowledged. And God is, in, in fact, not praised. He's not worshipped. So many things in this universe that are actually working actively against his reign. Okay, so he is a great king, of, king overall, but in Scripture, the, the kingdom story is about the reality of that actually being played out in the lives of individuals as God turns them away from their rebellion and towards him. Okay, it's the reign of God as it's actually lived out and experienced in the world as God is doing his work of turning the world back to him. So that's God's, that's the kingdom of God. And that's the story that scripture's telling us. Okay, now we're going to talk about this story, this story, this kingdom story, the one that ties all scripture together. You've been thinking all week, what is it that really holds the Bible together? You're about to get it. The kingdom story. This story comes in three acts. Okay, three acts to this kingdom story. And those acts are creation, fall, and redemption. Okay, now those might be uh, words maybe that are familiar to you and maybe as familiar labels of the story. But we're going to talk about the three acts. Creation. Creation answers the question that everybody is asking, why are we here? Why are we here? What is the purpose of our life? What is all this stuff here for? And in Scripture, creation gives us the answer to that question. The very first couple chapters of Genesis, you have Adam and Eve in God's presence as God has just spoken into nothing and created the world. By the very power of his word alone, he's made lights appear in the sky. He's created the oceans. He's created dry land. The birds in the heavens, the fish in the sea, animals on dry land. God speaks and everything springs into being. And at, the, and at the pinnacle of this, the grand finale of his creation, he creates Adam and Eve, the crown of his creation. And they are given charge of God's creation. 
And they're given this charge to go and care for, to reign over all of creation on God's behalf. In other words, he makes, he makes Adam and Eve to be the king and queen of all creation. That's what he created us to be. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the story of the Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, you've, you've read it or seen the movie, you remember that the four children in, this, in, the, uh, in the story, when they show up in, the, in Narnia, they're addressed as the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Okay, Peter and Susan and uh, Edmund and Lucy, they are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. And if you remember at the end of the story when the white witch is killed, what happens? These sons of Adam and these daughters of Eve are crowned. They become the kings and queens of Narnia because that is what people were created to be. Adam and Eve, beginning of Genesis, what do we see? Them walking in the garden, speaking face to face with God. There's this perfect connection between God and his people. And there's this perfect connection between Adam and Eve, between people themselves, and this perfect relationship with everything that's been made. Imagine this, a world with no deprivation and no disaster and no alienation, no relational fallout, a world where our bodies wouldn't get sick or old or die, a world that has no need for doctors or police or soldiers, no lawyers, no judges, no priests, no pastors, because there was no brokenness or sin and there were none of sin's effects. I mean, it's hard to even imagine our world being that. A, per, a world of, of perfect, unbroken, universal flourishing for everyone. A world that was the perfect expression of God's kingdom. His goodness, his rule expressed everywhere perfectly through the rule of his people, Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us that we were made for this. In fact, this is how our world actually began. To the first act in this kingdom story is creation. And it answers the question, why are we here? What are we made for? We were made to be people in perfect relationship with God and everything else. Okay, but there is, of course, a second act to this story. And that act is the fall, and it comes right on heels of the creation. Genesis 2, Genesis 2 and 3, what happens? Um, the fall answers this question. Why aren't things the way they're supposed to be? At some level, everybody asks this question of, does life have any meaning, meaning and what's the meaning of it? And also, people look around and, and think to themselves, why are things so broken? Why don't they work the way they should? Now, that's regardless of what story you buy into. Regardless of what your feelings are about God, well, regardless of what your feelings are about the Bible, there's no one who doesn't look around and say things aren't quite what they ought to be. And Scripture's answer to this is the fall, that what happens? Third chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve in their perfect relationship with God, that they actually turn away from that that they actually reject that. You know, we ask these questions, why is everything broken? Why in spite of the goodness of creation is there so much death and decay? Why is there so much suffering and pain and abuse and indifference? Why even in my closest relationships are there still times of deep misunderstanding and hurtful words, and deep disappointment? Why is it that I study and study and study and I just can't quite master the material. I can't quite pull off the A. Why is it that I can put hours and hours into my work and it still not pay off consistently the way it ought to? Why is it that I can travel hundreds of miles to see my children and my grandchildren, and I can buy them gifts, and I can shower my love on them, and they still don't call as often as I wish they did? 
Why is it that I can pour myself into my friendships or give myself to caring for others and I'm still single or misunderstood or lonely or disappointed? Why does this world not work the way it should? The Bible's answer, as we said, is that something cataclysmic happened. Something tragic, something went wrong that came in and ruined God's good creation. And it's because Adam and Eve turned away from their king, from their God. They betrayed their calling to know him and to serve him. And instead, they took the forbidden fruit, they ate it, and they plunged themselves and the world and us into ruin. And we, the sons of Adam, the daughters of Eve, following our first parents, we continue to make the same kinds of harmful decisions, the tragic decisions, and we, like they, continue to shake our fists at God. Okay, two acts, creation, fall. That's not the end of the story. The third act of this kingdom story is redemption. Okay, because we look around and we, we ask the question of why, why are we here and what does all this mean? And what has gone so desperately wrong? And then the related question of how are we going to fix this? Is there any hope? Is this ever going to rise from the ashes? And uh, Scripture's answer to that is redemption, that there is a healing, that there is an answer to this. Now think about the ways that we in our world try to find an answer to fixing the things that are wrong. Okay, let me tell, let's just briefly mention two things that are powerful for many of us. And they're twin answers. The twin answers of education and achievement. If we can just become well enough educated, then we're going to be able to get a handle on our world. If we can just attain the education, an education, certain educational level, then suddenly things in our life we're going to be able to fix. We're going to be smart enough to be able to uh, roll back the disasters of nature. We're going to become well-educated enough that we're actually going to be able to handle our relationships and navigate them smoothly. We're going to become well-educated enough that we're going to have that bright, glorious future that we so dream of because we're going to be equipped to go and take it. And then the thing that's entwined with that is uh, this picture, the answer of achievement. If I work hard enough, if I'm diligent enough, then uh, my life can really and finally shine. I can turn back the effects of all the brokenness in the world around me by working hard enough. It is attainable. So that can work out in two different directions, either pushing out into the world or pushing in. Use that education and achievement and push out into the world. There are things in the world that we can do to make it better. There, there's social action that we can take. There's justice that needs to be brought. There's a writing to the structures of the world, all of which are good things. But that can become our final and ultimate hope, that if we just got those things straight, if we just pushed out into the world effectively enough, then redemption would come and our world would work. Or we push in. Instead of looking outside of ourselves into the world to fix things, we just turn in and say, this world is about my own quest for self-awareness and self-discovery, and I can find what I need to make life work by looking more deeply inside. The answer to the Bible of how can things be fixed, this act of the story of redemption says something very different. It says that salvation, healing, and help and hope can only come to us from the outside. God created the world, and he is the only one that has the power to actually remake the world. And the surprising way he's doing that, he tells us in Scripture, is through the life, death, and resurrection of his own son, Jesus the Christ, God in the flesh, came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Okay, that is the Christian story. 
That is the kingdom story, creation, fall, and redemption. And if you are someone who's following Jesus, that is your story. But we easily get distracted, and we're all living our lives in light of some story, and often it's not that one. What is the compelling picture of reality that you are basing your life on? What's the thing that's really at the heart, at the center of your story? What's the thing that you think is going to really solve these things for you? Your story, every story, is providing an answer to these questions we're talking about. Why do we exist? What's the meaning of life? What went wrong? How can we make things right? And the Bible says that our story is the story of creation, fall, and redemption, of a God at work in his creation, of a world gone terribly wrong through our own sin and rebellion, and the story of a God who faithfully, mercifully, graciously pursues lost and errant people like us. This is our story. If you're a Christian, this is your story. Now, the second thing, God's kingdom story, not only what is it, but a fundamental question for many of us, can I trust it? Can I really trust that that is the true story? Now, some of us are maybe asking that question, can I trust it from the outside? Maybe you're looking in at Christianity for the first time thinking, I need to seriously consider what it says. Could it possibly be true? Maybe you're looking at this from the outside, or maybe you're looking at this question from the inside looking out. I've been in this story, I've embraced this story, and now I'm just not sure if it's actually true. You ever have times, those times, of real profound doubt? When you think, is all this stuff really actually true? All this stuff that we say about God, all this about Jesus, did it really happen? Why does it just feel so slippery in my life sometimes? I mean, the basic facts what the Bible teaches are not very difficult to grasp. But why do I look at my life and see so little evidence of God's presence, so little evidence of change, so little evidence of healing around me? Why can't I see more of the effects of this story in my own life? And for me, one of the critical times in my own life when this came was my freshman year in college. Um, I'd grown up in the church. Um, I'd grown up believing these things. And when I went to college, my, my, my unspoken belief was that deep down, everybody who's not following Jesus feels very empty and hollow and lost inside. They might not admit it, but at the core of their existence, that's really what's going on. So then I came to college, and as I got to know my friends on my freshman hall, I thought, I'm not sure these guys really feel empty and lost. Uh, they're not, manifestly not, following Jesus. And they seem to be enjoying their life, and everything seems to actually be working for them. It just didn't seem to be true in those first few months as I got to know people in my freshman hall, and it sent me into this time of great crisis of faith. Is all this really true? Now for you, it might not have been your freshman year in college. Maybe it was another transition time in life. Maybe it was just, maybe it's just the accumulated weight of the everydayness of life. Just trying to make it through my day. Just trying to get through my work. Get my kids into bed. Pay my bills. Maybe there are these times that suddenly spring up on you of this acute anxiety and angst where it grabs you by the throat and you think, is any of this really true? Times in your life, and maybe you're in the middle of one right now, when you hear the word kingdom of God and all you can hear is make-believe. Well, here's the thing about the book of Acts. 
and the Bible in general, it not only provides for us in the middle of those kinds of doubts, it assumes that we're going to have them. The Bible holds up two truths for us, and Acts holds up two truths for us about the kingdom of God for us to hold on to. Two things. First, that the, king, the story of the kingdom of God is rooted in history. That the claims of Christianity really did happen in space and time. Real events, verified by real eyewitnesses, says that history and truth really matter. Okay, let me give you just a couple background things about Acts that, that point in this direction. One is the author of this book, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts as well as the Gospel of Luke. And he wrote these as two halves of the same story, two volumes in the same story. And he was a second-generation Christian. He didn't know Jesus face-to-face. He heard these things from others and as someone who came to faith. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Luke and Acts, then maybe you will remember that when you read through these books, it never identifies the author. You don't get to the end and it says, by Luke, comma, saint. You know? um, in that sense, these books are anonymous. However, it has been the universal testimony of the early church from the second century onward that they were written by this man, Luke, who was a, who was a doctor. He was a companion of Paul's. Paul refers to him at various points in his letters. And from the second century, the church has said that, that these books were written by this man, Luke. And not only was he a real historical person, he also wrote to a real historical person. Look in um, the first verse of Acts 1 here. In, in the first book, again referring to the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He's writing to this man, Theophilus. And if you were to look back, as we will in a few minutes, to the first few verses of the Gospel of Luke, where he writes the prologue that really encapsulates both works. He mentions this guy, Theophilus, again. He is likely some sort of patron of Luke's. Okay, in, in the first few verses of Luke, he calls him um, most, um, oh, I think it's most exalted Luke, or most, we'll go back and look in a minute, but he gives him this term of recognition and authority because likely Theophilus was somebody who was of a higher social standing than Luke and may well have been his patron that was footing the bill for him to go and write these books and do the research that went into it. Okay, the audience of this book. But most importantly, when we look at this and we say, can I trust this story? And we say that it's rooted in history. We need to look at the careful historical care that Paul, or excuse me, that um, Luke pours into this book. Verse 1, he talks about, Luke says that I have dealt, in the first book I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. He's claiming to give an actual record of things that happened. Let me read for you the first four verses of, of the Gospel of Luke. Again, uh, the introduction that, that really covers both Luke and Acts. Here's the beginning of Luke. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke's making some significant claims. He's saying that he has received these things that he's telling us from eyewitnesses, from people who knew Jesus face to face, people who actually saw Jesus in his resurrection. Those eyewitnesses that reported the details of Jesus' life and ministry to him. 
And Luke's saying that other people have started to write about this as well. And Luke says, I set out to try to set an or- to write an orderly account of all the things about Jesus' life. So he's telling us that he is trying to do real history. And in verse 3 of Acts here, he tells us something also equally historically significant. He says that Jesus really did physically rise from the dead. Verse 3, to them Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering, his crucifixion, by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He's claiming that Jesus really rose from the dead. And when he he mentions this word proofs, it's it's in one sense these formal proofs or evidence of what's happened. Um, A commentator, Ben Witherington, says this, Luke believes the resurrection appearances of Jesus are strong, irrefutable proofs that Jesus is alive, providing a basis for all that follows, including the sending of the Spirit, the creation of the church, and the success of the Christian mission. In other words, what I'm just trying to make clear is that the Bible itself is claiming that these things are historically accurate and true. Okay, now, you might really be thinking this. Okay, fine. The Bible says it's true. That doesn't make it true, right? And you're absolutely right. The fact that the Bible says it for you, if you're looking at this from the outside, might not make it necessarily resonate as true for you. But it does at least tell us this. Okay, Luke, you might think that Luke is mistaken or that he's lying to us, that he's fabricating a story. But here's what you can't think. You can't think that Luke is presenting this to us simply as some nice spiritual fable disconnected from actual history. Jesus might not have risen from the dead bodily, but he's risen in our hearts. Okay, that it's a great inspiration. It's a great spiritual lesson. It can inspire us. Okay, you might not believe what Luke says, but you can't say that he meant that. Because Luke is clearly building a case that these things actually did happen. And his claim alone might not carry the day for you. But it's important for us to understand. And if you're someone who's following Jesus and you hit those points in class, in conversation, in life, where you stop and think, did it really happen? The Bible itself screams at us, yes, it did. You might have good questions about how can we trust what Luke says. And maybe those would be good things for us to talk about one-on-one. But my point here is simply that for Luke it is incredibly crucial that these things actually happen. And let me give you an example again from my favorite story, The Lord of the Rings. If you've read The Lord of the Rings, then you get to that last page, and then you realize that there's about 200 more pages afterwards. There are all these appendices to The Lord of the Rings. And if, if you're really into Lord of the Rings stuff, you know that, that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, he wrote, he wrote volumes of the backstories to the, to the Lord of the Rings that, that weren't even really put together in any sort of coherent narrative. But he wrote all these stories about the history behind the Lord of the Rings. Not only that, he invented the language Elvish and all the letters to go with it as part of this imaginary world of his. And there are portions, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings, you read it and it's written in Elvish, in Elvish letters, and he doesn't bother to translate it. Okay. Now, the cumulative effect of that when you read the Lord of the Rings is that it has this feeling of great depth. It feels, when you read it, it feels like there is this, you've really stepped into this world with its own language and its own history. You can start asking questions and you read this poem about somebody that lived hundreds of years before and you can go back to an appendix and read the whole story. It feels like a real world. 
And that's part of what brings the power of the, of the Lord of the Rings and why it has can have such imaginative effect on us. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, the events of the Lord of the Rings did not really happen. That's a surprise for some of us. I'm sorry. <laughs> there are days I have to remind myself of that. The events of the Lord of the Rings did not really happen, though it feels that way. Now, Scripture similarly has this feeling of depth and the backstory behind it. But unlike the Lord of the Rings, it makes the very clear claim that this is telling us about our real world and our real lives. And it has depth and resonance because it is a part of our real world. And just to drive this home just, just a little bit further, talk about the, the story of Scripture being, the kingdom story being rooted in history. And it's like any plant. What happens when you, when you pull that plant out by its roots? It withers and dies. And that is exactly what happens to the Christian story if this is not true. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says this about the resurrection. Okay, He's dealing with the question of, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And he says this, uh, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Now listen to this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What does Paul say? If what we're saying is not true, people should feel sorry for us. People should look at us and just sort of shake their head because to be a Christian is to build your entire life on this story. And it matters that it's true. It's to cast all our hope, all our love, all our faith on Jesus, the King of God's kingdom. Crucified, for our sins, raised to life for our justification, seated at the right hand of God in glory, coming again to bring us home. Now, if you remember 10 years ago, this is in March of 1997, there were 39 members of a cult called Heaven's Gate. These are the people that had crew cuts and black Nike tennis shoes. And over the space of three days in March of 1997, they committed mass suicide as a way to be released from their bodies so that they could be freed up to join the spaceship that was hidden in the, in the tail of the Haley-Bopp comet. Heaven's Gate. So we, those of you that remember that story are, are now here and now, what, what, what do you think when you hear that story? At best, you think they are to be pitied. And at worst, you think, they are incredibly foolish. They threw their lives away for a lie, a sham, a foolish and destructive delusion. But that's exactly what Paul's saying. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then he says we are doing exactly the same thing. So the stakes are incredibly high. Now, back to our doubt. Can we live in this story? Can we trust this story? Well, for Luke, he assumes and he tells us and he reminds us that we can, in fact, because it did really happen. If you look back again at verse 4 of Luke 1, you see that he says, he says, I write this that you may have certainty 
concerning the things that you've been taught. He says, I'm assuming I know that you struggle to remember and to believe, and there are those days when everything feels so slippery, and the days when all of this, you scratch your head and think, could it possibly be true? And he writes in order to persuade us and encourage us and remind us, to comfort us, and that means for the freshman in college trying to figure out if the things he grew up believing are really true and can have any power in his own life, Luke says yes. And for the single adults doubting that they're ever going to feel complete, ever have the companionship and the connection that they long for, the love they so desperately want, they're feeling as if God must have forgotten them. Luke says this story is true and you can trust it. For the struggling young parents wondering if God's kingdom really has anything to do with diapers, crying babies, with stalled careers, with frustrated hopes, with mortgage payments and car payments and credit card payments. For all of us who are asking the question in a thousand different ways, is God really there? Does he, is he really at work? Is he really real? And Luke and the book of Acts and all of scripture tell us yes, because the kingdom story is rooted in history. It really happened and is really happening around us. Now, secondly and briefly, not only is it rooted in history, this kingdom story is centered on the king. Look again the first couple of verses of Acts. Luke says, um, talks about it, all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, the book of Acts is Luke's continuation of all that Jesus continues to do through the power of his spirit in the lives of the his people who are following him. What does he say? The kingdom story did not end with Jesus' resurrection and ascension, but it continues because Christ is very much still alive and active through and in this world, through his people, through the power and work of his spirit. And we have to grab hold of this because we don't simply follow a set of historic truths. We don't simply follow facts about Jesus. We follow Jesus himself, our Lord and Savior who leads us and meets us and saves us and renews us even now. Because when you know only a set of of propositional truths about Jesus, but not Jesus himself, the story has no power. We must know him, Jesus, living a perfect life for you, dying a death that you deserve, reigning in heaven even now personally meeting us through the Holy Spirit, when we know that, as we know that, the degree to which we look in Jesus and find that in Him, is the degree to which we're going to begin to see His work in our lives and around us as He is beginning to change us and continuing to change us in radical ways. Towards the end of my high school uh, career is when the movie Dead Poet Society came out. Those of you who remember the Dead Poets Society, and there's this scene in the beginning of the movie with this new English teacher, John Keating, and he stands up before this class, first day of class, and they're already jaded and bored. And he tells them to open up their textbooks to the very first introductory essay by the academic Dr. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D., the essay entitled Understanding Poetry. J. J. Evans Pritchard, Ph.D., goes on in that essay to tell these students that if they, that they can construct a grid by which they can determine the merit of any poem. You know, what was the imagery like? How was the diction? What were, uh, you know, what were the phrases that moved you? And, and you, plot, you plot your poem somewhere on the graph. And then like a good engineer, no slam on engineers, you can step back and you can look at that graph and determine whether or not that was in fact a good and powerful poem. John Keating stands up as they read this essay and he says, rip it out. Tear it out. 
tear it out of your books. I want to hear the sound of pages ripping. And all these uptight, academically motivated students look at him like, we're not allowed to tear a page out of our book. What's he talking about? What's he saying? Rip it out because it's going to rip the life out of your appreciation for the power behind poetry. Because he said there are things you can know and plot on a graph about great English literature that will never move your heart if it only becomes the scientific graph on the wall for us. And scripture screams out to us that the historical facts about the person and work of Jesus are incredibly important. Our story rests on that. But it also tells us that you can know all the facts. You can plot it on the graph. You can know what happened and when and still miss Jesus. Because this story is not simply a set of intellectual truths to grasp. It's not simply a historical verities that we can um, point to and affirm. This story is centered on Jesus himself. Not only do we need to know that the real historical facts of his, of his life happened, we must know him and that is what Scripture brings to us, not simply the facts about Jesus, but Jesus himself. And following him means not simply knowing about him, but stepping into this story, the story of creation, fall, and redemption, where God is at work making all things new, where he's bringing real and substantial healing in our lives. And this Jesus who came, who died, who rose again, and who one day is coming back to bring us home, and to bring final and full healing to our world. This is our story. And at the center of it stands our King. We can and we have to, we must, we're called to live in this story. And you can trust it. And you can live in it. Because in this story we find Jesus himself. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you bring us a new story. One that is not centered on ourselves, but centered on you. One that does not end in death and decay, but ends in life. And we pray that this week that you would open up the beauty and power of that story to us more and more. May we live in it more and more. May we remember you and continue to turn away from the stories that call us away. Show us again the power of your work in creation. And as we see the dreadful effects of our rebellion and sin, remind us again of your glorious provision and redemption that you have brought Jesus to us to do what we cannot do for ourselves. May you be glorified and our stories as we live them out in the context of your story, the story of the kingdom. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.